We've been working our way through the book of Acts. Uh, Today we're going to finish up chapter 16. This is our third part in chapter 16. And we left the story off last week uh, in a unique place, just kind of to remind you of how it all went down. As Acts chapter 16 started, Paul and Silas had set out on this missionary journey, uh, this trip to encourage Jesus' followers, uh, the believers in the churches that they had already, Paul had already established on his trip with Barnabas a few years earlier. Uh, And anyway, as they were going, they were kind of going north from where they were in Antioch to modern-day Turkey, kind of the north edge of the Mediterranean Sea there. And they had planned on going a few different places and we're not told how or what this looked like, but the Spirit of God told Paul, nope, you're not going there. Nope, closed some doors. Uh, said Paul used the word forbid. The Spirit of God forbid us to go to these areas. So uh, God's kind of directing them very intentionally or, or very clearly, apparently. And so they wanted to go a few places. God said, no, you're not going those places. And then God gave Paul a dream that said, hey, come over here. So they sailed across the Aegean Sea into modern-day Greece, so kind of still on that northern end of uh, the Mediterranean Sea, but now going over from Turkey into Europe, into Greece. And that's where we left them last week, in a city called Philippi. And when they get to Philippi, they preach the gospel, and they had some success. There's a very successful woman uh, named Lydia who owns a home and has a business selling uh, kind of royalty garments to people. She gets saved. She becomes a Jesus follower. She turns her life around. She says, hey, you guys should come stay with me. So they end up living with her for a little bit while they're in town. And while they're wandering through the town, there's a demon-possessed girl who starts following them around. So long story short, their interactions with them uh, caused the demon to come out of that girl. And uh, unbeknownst to them, well, maybe they knew, I don't know, but uh, she was a slave girl, and and her owners were making money uh, by her telling people's fortunes or futures based on her demon possession. So uh, anyway, long story short, they get very upset uh, that the demon has now come out of this girl. They can't make money off of her anymore, and so they start basically a riot, and Paul and Silas end up caught up in this riot. They bring them to the authorities. The authorities, the Roman authorities in Philippi, have them beaten with rods and then handed over to the jailer in prison. And so the jailer then makes the decision to put them in the highest security part of the prison, the inner prison. So if you picture kind of, you know, a circular thing, the very center would be the highest maximum security area. And then the jailer decides to put them in stocks And that's where we left them uh, last week. Now, if you're thinking to yourself, wait, where's the trial? What what, what crime were they committing? What what, what were they accused of? Like, those are all great questions because none of those things took place, which was part of the problem that we're going to see later on in this. There was no trial. There was no formal charges. There wasn't actually a crime committed. Uh, It was extremely unfair. They were not where they wanted to be. God had led them to this place, seemingly stopping them from going in different places. And it definitely did not look like they thought it would look at the end of it. So on top of all this, they're hurting. They're in stocks, which if you didn't know, stocks were not just like something they were like, hey, like, let's invent this. This was a means of torture. Okay, so this is very painful and uncomfortable. So this is where we left Paul and Silas. They're not where they wanted to be. And, and just everything seems to be a mess. And that's where we pick it up, verse 25 of Acts chapter 16. It says, About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. It says that 
even in the midst of this situation, I'm not going to go any further. You're like, you're like, how far are we going to read? That was it. I want to stop there because I think this is such a profound picture of what's happening here. They've been thrown in prison. They're in the maximum security area of the prison. That first night, it's dark, probably quiet, right? People are falling asleep. And about midnight, it says that they are praying and singing hymns to God. And I read this and I think to myself, what does it usually sound like when people are in this type of a situation? When somebody's not where they want to be, when it doesn't look like they wanted it to look, when it's very uncomfortable, even painful, when they don't understand why God would leave them there, what does that usually sound like? What do you usually hear from that type of an individual? When does it usually sound like when somebody's being treated unfairly? What sounds do you think they usually heard in a jail throughout the day or even through the night? I tell you what was surprising for them to hear. Praying and singing hymns to God. In fact, Paul and Silas's response to their situation is so unusual, it says the rest of the prisoners are listening to them. They're like listening, like what what are these guys doing? Do you hear that? Like they're they're intentionally listening. This isn't like the word here is not just like, oh yeah, it's background noise. This is like people are like, what? Like, you know, when you hear something, you're like, wait, did I hear that? Did, did I, what's going on here? Because this is so foreign to what people would expect to hear and what they would usually hear of people when things haven't worked out for them, when they're treated unfairly, when they're in a place of pain, let alone in prison. The world literally has no explanation for this type of joy. This is why these people are listening. They're going like, wait, what is it? Like, why, how, and if you were in that situation, you probably yourself would start to like try to process like what could possibly make a person pray and sing hymns to God in maximum security prison being tortured in stocks in the middle of the first night here. Like this seems like there, there's no explanation for this. If you want to go like, hey, let's do science. Apart from God, apart from his Holy Spirit, apart from the grace of Jesus Christ, there is no explanation for why someone would walk this road or respond like this. You know, Jesus told a story one time and the line he used to finish up kind of his teaching and his story was this. He says, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And I think about that when I hear this story of Paul and Silas singing and praying hymns to God. Because what you would interpret when you see men like this still having joy, even in the midst of such an unfair, uncomfortable, uncomprehendable, really, reality that they find themselves in, is that freedom was not their ultimate treasure. Right? Right? Comfort was not their ultimate treasure. Worldly possessions were not their ultimate treasure. Convenience was not their ultimate treasure. Justice wasn't even their ultimate treasure. Because they've lost all those things, and yet their heart is still having joy. So whatever it is that we usually think people would have as their ultimate treasure, whatever it is that people would usually consider as a treasure, Paul and Silas are in a different place altogether. 
Because all of those things, the comfort, the, the peace, the, the ease, the convenience, the fairness, the justice, all those things have been stripped from them, and yet their heart is rejoicing in the midst of it. See, when God is your treasure, that nobody could take that away from you. The world has no explanation for this because the world can take all those other things away from you. The world can take your justice. The world can take your comfort. The world can take your health. The world can take your longevity. The world can take your hope, right? Like It can take all those things. It can give you all of these things that do not match up with where your treasure is if your treasure is in things that are not God. But it can't take God from you. The world looks on and has no explanation for this type of joy because those without Christ cannot comprehend a joy that endures the loss of freedom or rights or fairness or comfort. But if your joy is not dependent on your circumstances, then it endures. And I think it's fair at this moment to ask God, what are you doing? Why would you do this? Like, this is a cool picture of two guys who don't have their treasure in the things of this world and are still having joy in the midst of difficulty. But why would you take, supposedly, some of your top people, right? I know there's no ranking system, but I would think that people who are going out to preach the gospel on a missionary journey, who are making their lives about the furtherance of the gospel, like, those seem to be high-ranking folk in the Jesus following community, right? Why would you take your best people and put them in the middle of this prison? I read this phrase this week, and I love the imagery of it. It was a phrase used by Tim Keller, and it's this. He said this, God is bringing people he loves into earshot of the gospel. Bringing people into earshot of the gospel. Have you ever watched that movie? Well, it's not a movie. It's a TV show, Alone. Like, I know it's been super popular. And if you don't know what Alone is, they drop people off in the middle of the woods, like mostly in Canada, because nobody lives in Canada. No, just joking. Canadians, I'm sorry. But anyway, they drop you off in the woods, and then you just try to make it as long as you can, all by yourself. And there's this point that the winner, they come get the winner by helicopter. And, and so there's this like, there's this weird scene at the end of the seasons I've watched where they're like, they're like listening for things. They're like, wait, did you hear that? Right? They're like, once something gets into earshot, it's like life changing for them. And I think this is a beautiful picture. The gospel is like this, this lifeboat, this life raft, this helicopter coming to save you, right? And bring you good news. And like, it just needs to get within earshot. You just where you can hear it. Right? That's the most joyous moment of the person, right? Is that first moment when they're like, I heard it. It's coming for me. Like, that's the picture of like bringing the gospel into earshot of people whom God loves. And I get a lot of questions sometimes as a pastor of like, hey, what am I supposed to do? Where am I supposed to go? Like, there's a fork in the road. Do I go right? Do I go left? Does God want me to go to this college or that college? Does God want me to take this job or that job? Should I move to this neighborhood or that? Like, there's, there's quite a few people who, at certain instances in their lives, have choices to make, and they want to know my input on which direction God wants them to go. And I'll just be real honest with you. That's not the most important question. The most important question is not which fork in the road you take. The most important question is, 
what are the people around you going to hear when you get there? Like, what are they going to hear? Are they going to hear this? Because if, 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 if where you go isn't bringing people into earshot of the gospel, then where you go doesn't really matter as much. Like, who cares where you go if you're not going to be praying and singing, if nobody's going to hear joy when you get there? And God uses his people because there's people in this jail who need to be within earshot of the gospel. Another way to say it would be this. If you prioritize responding to the goodness of God with all of your life, God will worry about where he puts you and what he uses you to accomplish. If you just worry about how you respond to the grace of God, if you just worry about how you worship God in spirit and in truth, then, then God will put you in places that he can use that. And it might be the middle of a prison, and I'm, 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 you know, you're welcome. That's not like great news for some of you. Like, man, that sounds really uncomfortable. But apparently here in our story, there are some people in the prison whom God dearly loves and he's brought Paul and Silas to them that they might hear. And look at what happens in verse 26. And suddenly, as they're listening to them sing and pray to God, there was a great earthquake. So the foundations of the prison were shaken. And immediately all the doors were open and everyone's bonds were unfastened. And when the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. This is an interesting contrast that we have here. On one side, we have Paul and Silas singing and praying to God while in probably some of the most uncomfortable circumstances of their lives. On the other side, we have a Philippian jailer who, from his perspective, also experiences something very negative. And the conclusion he comes to is that I shouldn't worship God, but my life is no longer worth living. He's about to kill himself. The guy inside the jail are worshiping God. The guy running the jail wants to end his life. That's a pretty big contrast, right? This is worth exploring a little bit because this type of jail would have been run by the Roman Empire, and the Roman Empire uses their military soldiers, uh, their military for everything. So this guy was uh, most likely, like, when I say most likely, it's probably 100% that this guy was a Roman soldier of some type. And then probably because he was in charge, uh, he was probably a successful and well-respected Roman soldier. So history even tells us it was probable that uh, well-respected uh, soldiers that did a good job, probably were leaders in other areas, were given these posts overseeing jails, especially in a big, important city like Philippi, as kind of a retirement gift. Say, like, hey, you did your battle at the front. Now, like, we'll keep paying you and you can run this jail and you could just kind of coast into retirement age and death. And so this is probably a very successful from the outside looking in type of person. From the outside, it might appear like this guy has it all together, like things are going really well. But there's something broken in this man. And it's revealed when the circumstances put some pressure on him. That happens a lot. You find out what's really inside a person when you put a little pressure on them. It's common for those who don't know Jesus to paint a picture of Christianity as a restrictive, stifling type of environment. And, and those who don't follow Jesus as like free and alive. Have you ever felt that before? Uh, we, 
Never mind. That's a soapbox. When we were in the park last year uh, during COVID, uh, there was a, a lady across the street that was very upset that we were in the park, and she like sang a song on the internet about how like uh, there's only the good die young. Have you ever heard that song? It's an older song, so some of you who are like over 30 are like, yeah, and the rest of you are like, you lost me. And I'm sorry for that. But there's a line in the song that said, I'd rather live with the sinners than die with the saints. And that's the idea, right? The sinners are having all this fun, and the saints are like, the people in the church are like all stiff and regulated and like not having any fun. Does this guy look like he's having fun right now? Without Jesus? How much fun does this guy look like he's having? How much joy? Is he like living it up? Right? He's a Roman soldier. He's in charge of things. Like there's all sorts of directions that he could sin in his life. Drunkenness, sexual immorality. Like does that look like a lot of fun? Because he no longer thinks his life is worth living in this moment. It doesn't look like he's free and fun and just really enjoying his sin right now. And it's not just an example from your Bible. I've seen it personally as a pastor over and over and over and over again. People who have given themselves to sin, who have turned their back on things that they know they should or shouldn't do, right? Who have said, like, I know God's calling me to do this, but I'm going to have fun. And the end of that road is not very fun. And sometimes as Christians, we ask this question, why is life so hard? Why is it so hard to be a Christian? You know what's also just as hard and probably harder because at the end of it, there's no hope is the life without Jesus, right? We have this false dichotomy that like the people in the church, like they're like so restricted and like not having any fun and outside the church, we're having all this fun. And there's a lot of people outside the church who are not having fun either. And they thought it would be fun and they went down that road and it turned out they like the Philippian jailer it's not that fun. It's not that fun at all. It's a lie. Look at verse 28. But Paul cried with a loud voice to this guy who had heard Paul. Like he, prayed, he clearly knew exactly what was going on in the heart of Paul and Silas. He knew what their message was, had resisted it up to this point. Paul cried with a loud voice to this guy who's about to kill himself, do not harm yourself, for we are all here. Don't harm yourself. If there was a guy who had overseen your wrongful imprisonment and torture, it seems as if you wouldn't be terribly sad to see that guy have a really bad day, right? It happened one time in my life, and it was like, I'll never forget it. It was awesome. One of those jerks that just drives like a million miles an hour came right up on my butt. It was like two inches from my tail. I was like, I'm going five over the speed limit. I don't know what your problem is, bro. Like we do not need to be driving a hundred million miles an hour. And he's just like up there like doing this. And then like we, he couldn't pass me because it was a windy mountain road. And I was like, dude, get off my tail. And so finally there was like the just the barely like you could see down the road and he goes flying around me and whips back in and like there wasn't room and there was a car coming the other way and he almost and then maybe two seconds later this cop pulls out and pulls him over right in front of me I was like hallelujah 
right? That never happens, right? The guy always is such a jerk driving. You're like, where's the police when you need them, right? And it happened to me, and it was awesome. I was like, that's what you get. I'm like giving them a thumbs up on the way by. Like, yeah. Finally. Never forget that day. It's never going to happen again. I feel like I would have been Paul in that situation. Like, Paul, right now, like, you just torture. Like, there's a lot of evidence that tells us the Philippian jailer did a lot of extra things to Paul and Silas to make their lives harder that he didn't need to do. We're just told that the authorities said, like, hey, keep them in jail. The Philippian jailer is the one that decided to put them in maximum security prison. Who do you put in maximum security prison? The guys that are preaching the gospel? Like, they're not exactly violent criminals. Not only did he put them in the maximum security portion of the prison, he put them in stocks. They didn't develop stocks like we said earlier because like, they were like the Holiday Inn of prison accommodations, right? This is intended to be torture. You're stretching people out, making prison harder. So the Philippian jailer chose these things. Hey, you get to live here, you get to stay here, and you get to be in stocks, There's a lot of evidence in the story that suggests he was not exactly their friend. And yet, Paul reaches out to, hey, don't do that, man. Don't do that. We're all here. Paul stops this man from killing himself. There's there's another quote from Jesus, and it says this. If you love only those who love you, how are you different from anybody else in the world? He's teaching through the Sermon on the Mount, and he gets to this part about love your enemies. We, we all know you love your enemies. Very few of us actually do it. But the, the, the part of the quote that really hits me is Jesus like, if you only love people that love you, you're like every, you know what? Awful people love people that love them. Like the worst criminals that the world has ever seen. The most hateful, spiteful humans that have ever existed love the people that loved them. That's not unique. That doesn't take the Holy Spirit. That's not God-honoring. What's different than everybody else is if you love your enemies. That makes a mark in the world. And, and Paul shows love to a man who has shown him here no kindness Again, the world has no explanation for this type of behavior apart from the Spirit of God. It makes no sense. And look at what happens. Verse 29. And the jailer called for the lights and rushed in. And trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. And he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds. And he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Then he brought them up to his house and set food before them. And he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had all believed that he, they had all believed in God. But verse 35, when it was day, the magistrates sent the police saying, let those men go. And the jailer reported these words to Paul saying, the magistrates have sent to let you go. Therefore, come out now and go in peace. But Paul said to them, they have beaten us publicly, uncondemned men who are Roman citizens and have thrown us into prison. And do they now throw us out secretly? No, let them come themselves 
and take us out. Now, this is the first time that Paul has been in trouble uh, with the Roman authorities. Up to this point, he's been in, in, in trouble with the Jewish authorities, but Jews are not over the empire. Rome is over the empire. So this is like, he was in religious trouble before, and the Jews had their own kind of laws and systems and things like that. But now he's in trouble with the law law, like the people, who, the law of the land, the Roman authorities. But he's a Roman citizen. As a Roman citizen, he has rights. There's things like trials and, and things like that to make sure the justice system functions correctly. So he just lets them know, actually, guys, you just threw me in prison. I'm a Roman citizen, and I bet the authorities over you would have all the interest in the world about how you didn't follow any of our justice system protocols. So you can actually come on and let us out and apologize. So the police, verse 38, reported these words to the magistrates, and they were afraid when they heard that they were Roman citizens. So they came and apologized to them, and they took them out and asked them to leave the city. So they went out of the prison and visited Lydia. And when they had seen the brothers, they encouraged them and departed. So we finished chapter 16, and the whole chapter, we had three separate stories. Okay, if you've been with us, that's great. You'll remember this. If not, I'm going to give you the rundown. At the beginning, we had Lydia, if you remember. And, and Lydia was very successful. Like from the outside, well, not just from the outside. She pretty much had her life together. She had it figured out. Then we had the demon-possessed girl, who was a complete opposite of Lydia. Like, if Lydia had it figured out, like, this girl had nothing figured out. She was a complete wreck. She was a mess. And not only was she a mess, everybody could tell. Everybody around her was like, you're owned by two greedy men who have no problem owning a young girl in order to make money off of her, using her demon possession to make these guys rich. Like, she's a mess, and everybody knows she's a mess. And then we have a guy who's somewhere in the middle. He probably doesn't look like a mess, but he gets bumped a little bit, and he has suicidal thoughts in his heart. Like, he looks like he's okay. He looks like he's a Lydia. Inside, he's a complete wreck, like the demon-possessed girl. And so we have these three kind of data points along the spectrum. Right? And, and what I love about this chapter, as we went through it, is all of these people are loved by God. The people who got it all together, the people who are pretending to all have it together, but are a complete wreck, but nobody knows yet, and the people who everybody knows, you're a complete wreck. All of them are loved by God, and God is bringing all of them into earshot of the gospel. And all three of them in our chapter are changed by the gospel. And so there is no difference in their old lives. All that matters was what they were doing was not sufficient. What they were doing did not give them eternal life and hope for the future. And you could say, well, Lydia was closer than the rest. It doesn't matter. Like, that's such a stupid argument to have. Which one of them needed the gospel less? Which one of them needed the gospel the most? Like, is there one of them that would have been closer to living forever without Jesus? No, it wasn't working. And, and, and 
if I had to go back and do it again, right, I would say the biggest miracle is that Lydia came to Jesus because people who have their lives figured out, who are doing pretty well, they usually, they don't want to admit that they're not going to make it, right? That was amazing that Lydia humbled herself and said, yeah, like, I, this is, I, things are going pretty well for me and I still need Jesus, right? There's so many others who are pretending things are going well, like the Philippian jailer, but really behind the scenes, they're a wreck, or they are just a complete wreck, and everybody knows about it. You're like the little brother of your family, and everybody kind of rolls their eyes. You know what's great about this? Is the gospel, as God brings them into earshot of the gospel because of his love for them, the gospel has something to say to each one of those people. If you're a Lydia, it's like, yeah, I'm, I'm glad your life's going well. But you will never experience the type of joy and the type of hope that you are intended to experience if you do not surrender to Jesus. If you're, you look good on the outside and are a wreck on the inside, which is probably the vast majority of us, like, like you being a wreck on the inside is not a surprise to God. Like maybe you thought you've hidden it, and God knows. He wants to call you out of that and let you experience his love and get you out of this pretend world that you've been living in. This, I, I've been pretending this whole thing. God's like, no, no, no. You and it might be uncomfortable, that process of getting you out of the pretending. But it's an act of love. And then if you're a wreck and everybody knows you're a wreck, God's not up in heaven like, yeah, you're a wreck. Like the great thing about this chapter is that he brings this demon-possessed girl into earshot of the gospel just like the other two because she's in the same need as the other. She's not in more need. The others aren't in less need. It's the same. And what we learn from this is there is nobody who is beyond the extent of the reach of the grace of God. There's, there's nobody on this planet where God looks down and is like, you know what, you're just a little too far. If you come a little closer, then I could get you with my grace. But you, you're just like, you're like eight inches too far. Nobody's too far. Paul says this great thing later. He says, God is able to save to the utmost. Like, the utmost, like that's the furthest. Like, you can't get too far. Now the choice is up to you. I don't know where you're at on the spectrum. My guess if it, things are going pretty good, you don't feel any need to come to Jesus. It doesn't, doesn't mean your need isn't real. You're just like, I'm good. I'm, I'm fine. My guess is if you're in that big area that most of us live in where we pretend that we're better than we really are and the inside's a little more of a wreck than we are comfortable with everybody knowing, the gospel invites us to let down that this morning, to rejoice in the goodness of God. And if you're on the far end of the spectrum and it's such a wreck that it's seeping out and everybody can feel it around you, I hope you're encouraged with the truth that you're not too far. The gospel has something to encourage you with this morning, to save you with this morning. I don't know for certain what God is speaking to you specifically this morning. The great news is I don't need to. <laughs> The Holy Spirit knows what he's doing. He's great at his job. I, I don't know where on the spectrum you are. Some of you are going to be called to sing through the difficulty. 
like, like Paul and Silas were. Right? Some of you are going to, in obedience to God, walk into circumstances that are less comfortable than you had hoped, that are not fair, that are really difficult. And he's going to use you to do something because of your character and reach people in a way that you never dreamed. And you're coming out the other side of it with more joy than you ever thought possible. And that's going to be great. And some of you, you're going to be called to listen and respond to the gospel when your world is broken. Like the Philippian jailer. Some of you are going to, you're going to get bumped. Stuff's going to come out that you would really rather stay hidden and God's going to be like, hey, let's go. Here's the grace. Now you respond to it. And then some of you are, are, are going to be exposed as treasuring things that aren't the gospel. Some of you are going to be exposed as like, hey, I think I got it all together. Right? And maybe some of these things are going to be taken away. And you'll be like, ah, I lost my joy. And God's like, yeah, I knew. I knew the whole time. You've been settling for a facade of happiness when God wants you to experience true joy. Which, whichever thing the Spirit is putting on your heart, is tugging on your heartstrings this morning, the great news is that we have experienced this morning and will continue to experience through this cool time of year the love of God as he lovingly brings us into earshot of the gospel. That's one of the great things about the Christmas season. Right? Is you, I mean, you could ignore it if you want to, but there are these reminders of the gospel everywhere you turn. And yeah, most of them are financially driven, which is a bit of a bummer. But, but you can, as a believer, a Jesus follower, use it to remind yourself of the incredible grace of God. I would encourage you to do so. And I would encourage you to make that known in your circles. Right? You don't have to be the obnoxious, right? Like, Red cup, Starbucks, you're taking the Christ out of Christmas. Right? Like, okay, you can be mad about that if you want to. You're not going to get very far. Right? And I get it. Or you could just be like, hey, this red cup reminds me of Jesus. Even though it says happy holidays. Merry Christmas. Maybe God wants to use you to bring people in this city into earshot of the gospel during this season. That would be my guess. Maybe God wants you to experience more joy than you currently are. He's probably calling you to treasure him more. I don't know what it's like for you, but this is a time that we do at the end of the service, right? Stephen, you can come on up, finish. We, we take a, a minute. We pray and we sing. And, and, and you could sing out loud if you want, or you can just respond to God in your heart. Maybe it's, it's just something God's dealing with. Like I said earlier, maybe you just felt a tug on your heart about a certain thing and you just need to have like a quick conversation with God about that. Hey God, is there something, something you're calling me? Is there, is there a different way? Am I seeing this right? I don't know what that looks like for you, but we're going to make time for that thing to happen right now. So um, I'm going to pray. Uh, Stephen's going to finish with a song um, and then we'll wrap up service.